please grab your Bible there, First Timothy. I'm feeling a, a bit more relaxed than I was at um, just after six o'clock when I arrived here at church and pressed the button on my tablet to bring up my sermon. Black screen. I've been preaching from a tablet about 10 years now, and I knew that day would come. Um, it hasn't ever troubled me before, but uh, I always have it on my phone anyway. If I, I can always preach if I, I need to, but uh, some folks might have seen me scooting across the car park um, in the wrong direction at five past six. That was me going home just to try and sort things out. It's all good. Um, my sermon's here in nice clear font on my tablet. This evening we are simply going to begin a journey in First Timothy. I think it's a, a privilege that we have at our evening service here in Hamilton Road just to, to take time in God's word. Uh, we don't feel constrained uh, with a, an elaborate order of service the way we might do on a Sunday morning. Um, so we, we just have time to, to really grapple with God's word and come to understand it. I, I've really enjoyed um, being in, in the word this week. Neil says he's, he's looking forward to the series, so am I. Um, so let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we've already sung it, but we pause to, to really own what we have sung. We want you to speak, O oh Lord. Lord, help us to hear those parts of First Timothy that we like and enjoy, of course. Uh, and Lord, help us to hear those parts of First Timothy that lie out with our comfort zones, the, the parts uh, where we still need more of your transforming work in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear your word in its entirety. Amen. When you come to a, a letter, if you find a letter lying somewhere and you want to interpret it, you, you've got to know the who questions. So we're, we're just going to take some time introducing us to this letter. We'll start with the who questions. Who wrote it? Who received it? So who wrote this letter? You, you will know, 99% of you, that this was written by Paul. You don't need me to tell you that. You don't even need to drop your eyes to the text, but, but Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. Within 1 Timothy, Paul tells us a little bit more about himself. There are autobiographical passages, and I think they helpfully show us two things that, that we might keep before us when we think about Paul. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, he refers to his conversion. Okay? The narrative you maybe know is tucked away there in Acts in chapter 9. It corroborates what we're reading here. But we're informed that Paul, he had been a blasphemer, he tells us, a persecutor, a violent man, verse 13. And that was so much the case that now, years later, Paul's near the end of his ministry. He's, he's been following Jesus for a couple of decades at least. Even now, after all of God's transforming work in his life, he's still willing to describe himself, verse 15, as the worst of sinners. He talks about how his life was turned around uh, through the amazing grace 
mercy and patience of God. He describes God as his savior three times in this letter, chapter one, verse one, chapter two, verse three, chapter four, verse 10. At several points, Paul can't contain himself, but he interrupts his letter with, with songs of praise to this God who has shown him such undeserved love. Our passage finished with one of these wee songs of praise, chapter 1, verse 17. But you see it again in chapter 6 uh, at the end of the letter. Throughout this letter, it's as clear as day that Paul is a converted man. So the first thing we notice about Paul is that he's converted. But, but that's, not, that's not all we can say about Paul. We need to notice as well that Paul is commissioned. So he tells us, chapter 1, verse 11, that he's been entrusted with the gospel. He tells his readers in chapter 1, verse 12, and in chapter 2, verse 7, that he's been appointed by Christ as a herald, an apostle. And Paul's got a particular appointment among the early apostles. He had a special calling to the Gentiles or to the nations, those beyond the nation of Israel. He wanted the whole world to, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, through his preaching and teaching ministry. And by the way, we, we shouldn't be surprised about that. In Acts chapter 9, where we read about Paul's conversion, we read that the Lord sent Ananias to him. Ananias, go to this man, my chosen instrument, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So, so Paul was always going to be an apostle for the Gentiles. He's a particular burden to ensure that this church in Ephesus, which he'd been involved in planting, would have that same vision, that same gospel at its center, and that same vision for sharing the gospel with the world. So who sent the letter? Paul, the converted and commissioned Paul. Who's he writing to? Paul addresses the letter, verse 2, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Again, you, you can go to Acts to, to flesh out the details. The first time we read about Timothy in Acts is chapter 16, verse 1. That's in, in Lystra, we discover him in modern-day Turkey. And, and the best way to explain this language that Paul uses when he describes him as my my true son or my son in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, it seems that Timothy has come to faith through the ministry of Paul. He's not his physical son, but he's a spiritual son. And this Timothy is soon found accompanying Paul on his missionary journeys. And so, as time goes by, he gains more and more trust from Paul, and he's often sent out as an envoy. The, the, if you, you read the all the passages and bring them together, you get this sense of a, a working relationship that's growing and maturing so that by the time Paul writes Romans 16, he describes Timothy as a co-worker. And, and several of the epistles are even co-written. You'll find that they're written by Paul and Timothy. Again, when you read the, the material right through, you discover that Timothy's ministry is exemplary. He's known for his concern both for Christ's interest and the welfare of the churches he serves. So, for example, Philippians 2, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Some people serve in Christian ministry for wrong motives. It was so then, it's so today, not Timothy. He was not concerned for his own security or reputation because he had given himself to the cause of Christ and Christ's church. So who wrote the letter? That's Paul. Who's he written to? That's Timothy. While it's true enough to say that Timothy is the recipient of the letter, if we only said that, we, we wouldn't really be 100% right. Timothy is the primary recipient of the letter. But it's also understood he's going to share this letter with the church in which he finds himself. He's working where? Verse 3. He's working in Ephesus. So Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to sort out particular problems that are developing there. As Paul's representative, his task is to call that church back to the apostolic teaching it had originally received from Paul. So although this letter is primarily written to Timothy, a trusted friend, it's also written to be heard by that church, that whole church there in Ephesus. Flick for a moment to the end of the book, and I'll show you, just to be clear about this. I can show you a place here where Bible translations, some people despair of modern Bible translations. They imagine that the Bible was always more accurate uh, the translations in the past than in the present. I'll show you an example here of how it's clearer in the present than in the past. Do you see where the NIV says in the very final words of the letter, grace be with you all? If you went back just even to the previous version of the NIV, the, the one that precedes this one, it, or the ESV that, that still exists, it would simply say grace be with you. And you'd be thinking, oh, he's signing off in his letter to Timothy. But what you wouldn't see is that the Greek is a plural. And that grace be with you all. All of you in Ephesus is what Paul originally intended. So this is a letter. We'd be able, we have no problems with this kind of thing in Northern Irish. We have a more sophisticated language. Paul would sign off and say, grace be with you or usings, and we, we would know that it's not just Timothy, but the whole church family. But some people are limited by, by the Queen's English, and, and here they have it. What do we know then about this church that's receiving this letter, this church in Ephesus? Paul planted the church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 19. And, and you need to know Ephesus has a special place in his heart. Some of the churches he went to, he was only there for a matter of weeks. Thessalonians, which we preached a while ago, didn't spend very long there at all. Couldn't have been more than a matter of two or three months. Ephesus, he stayed for three years. Three years out of a, a ministry where he, as you know, traveled many times, many journeys, many different parts. Ephesus was one of the communities that was really in Paul's heart. 
We can see how Paul loved the church in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. Let's, we've talked a bit about Acts and how it, it sits beside this letter. Let's, let's have a look in Acts chapter 20. Flick with me quickly. Acts 20, page 1117, if you're using the Pew Bible, because we get a sense here of how Paul reflects on his time in Ephesus. We pick up in verse 17. Paul's on a journey back towards Jerusalem. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep your finger in, Ephesus, in Acts 20. So we're studying a letter written by Paul to Timothy, but to be heard also by that church community in Ephesus. That's the who question dealt with. Let's, let's think for a moment about the what question. What, what's this letter about? The issue which particularly concerns Paul, which motivates him to write this letter, is flagged up for us right at the outset. Paul urges Timothy to stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. That's interesting. After our sermon this morning in Genesis 12. The issue here is false teaching. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teaching would arise. Have a look. You're still in Acts 20, I think. You have a finger in Acts 20. This... Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, you should imagine is happening, happening before he wrote the letter. Possibly quite a while before. It might be a few years have elapsed from he says what he says in Acts 20 till he writes the letter. Look what he said in Acts 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. 
If you get the timeline right and understand that Acts 20 comes before the writing of the letter, you understand then that actually Paul has anticipated what's now come to happen in Ephesus. Years earlier, he was warning people that false teaching would arise, and it would arise from within their own midst. And, and that's why Paul's writing. That's his primary purpose. We'll get a chance to explore the false teaching in greater depth as we move through the letter, but let me quickly give you an idea of, of what was going on. We're introduced to the false teaching in the, the first verses of chapter 1. The false teachers, they're teaching false doctrine, they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is resulting in controversial speculations, in meaningless talk, all demonstrating a, a poor grasp of God's law, verse 7. But it's not just in the opening chapter that Paul talks about the false teaching. Flick with me to the opening verses of chapter 4. You'll see there that the false teachers are, one, forbidding people to marry, and two, they're ordering them to abstain from certain kinds of food. Sounds like some sort of wonky legalism. Paul returns to the false teaching in chapter 6. He says of the false teachers, verse 4, that they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and conscious, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. This teaching seems to be motivated at some points by financial gain, and one thing it does everywhere it goes is it brings division. Paul closes his letter, verses 20 to 21, urging Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Remember what we're trying to establish here. We're trying to work out what the, the scholars call the occasion of this letter, the, the reason why Paul felt energized to write it. He's writing to Timothy to tell him to silence the false teaching that's crept into the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, it doesn't feel like it's plunged into absolute doctrinal heresy and a complete rejection of the gospel. It feels rather like the effect of the, the teaching that's going on there is that the glorious gospel has been obscured. That weird stuff and esoteric stuff and divisive stuff has come to the fore. And it's resulting this, there's legalism there, asceticism, infighting in the church. The, the problem with all of that is, is not just the, the theological. It, it's also what it does to people's lives. People are being tempted to leave the faith because of what's going on in the church. Have a look. Chapter 1, verse 6. Some have departed from God's work, which is by faith. Flick with me to chapter, let me show you a few verses here about the, the drift out of the church. Chapter 5, verse 15, 
Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Chapter 6, verse 10, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Chapter 6, verse 21, some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Whenever the church gets sick in its teaching, it gets sick in its living, and it pushes people away from Jesus Christ. That, that's the effect that this false teaching in Ephesus is having. As a result, the church had an increasingly poor reputation in the surrounding community. This is the problem that Paul wants Timothy to address. Chapter 1, verse 3, if, if Paul talks about something right at the start of a letter and then right at the end, chapter 6, verse 20, have a look. If he talks about the same thing at the start and the end, you can be pretty sure that you're, you're on topic. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted. Turn away from the godless chatter. It's false teaching at the start and at the end of this letter. That's what the, the letter's about. Now, if you, if you went through 1 Timothy and highlighted the sections that deal clearly with false teaching and Paul's call to Timothy to refute false teaching, you'd highlight a good part of the letter. But you wouldn't highlight it all. And there's a reason for that. There's a negative work that Timothy has to do. There's something that he has to, to stop and to silence. But there's a positive counterpoint. The positive thrust of Paul's teaching can be seen right at the heart of the epistle. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 14. If Timothy has to stop something and to silence something, there's something else that he has to, to, to promote Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Timothy, you've got to stamp out false teaching that's destroying the church, and you've got to encourage godly living that, that builds a church. In a book which I've relied on quite heavily for this introduction, Angus Maclay says that the heart of 1 Timothy is a concern for godliness within God's household in order to enable the truth of the gospel to be displayed to the world. As we study this book of 1 Timothy, I hope to show that this is Paul's greatest concern this is the reason, actually, why he needs Timothy to refute false teaching. It's so that God's household, the church, will be a pillar and a foundation for the truth. The church is the place where the gospel is displayed for a watching world. Therefore, it's imperative that God's people live lives which honor the gospel. Throughout the, this book of 1 Timothy, one of the things that we're going to notice is that Paul's constantly urging Timothy himself to live a good life and to encourage the people to live a good life. 
you can see how important this theme is to Paul by, by noticing how he summarizes his argument. Look again to chapter 6. Look at verse 18. Just as he's winding things up, as he's bringing things to a close, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Why? I have a sense that the evangelical church is still confused about this, and I don't understand the confusion. The New Testament's crystal clear about this. Why are God's people to be involved in good works? Is it so that they can be saved? Are we saved by good works? No. Paul tells us a hundred times that we cannot be saved by any of our works. It's of grace through faith so that none of us can boast. But it doesn't mean that good works aren't important, aren't right at the heart of what God calls us to. The good works simply have a different purpose. God wants us to live godly lives so that people out there who don't believe in the living God, who, who are a million miles from him, will see him. God wants to be embodied. That's why he gives us his spirit, so that we can live and walk around Bangor and show Jesus. If you weren't clear about that theme from reading 1 Timothy... I hope you will be by the time we finish, but if you weren't, the book of Titus, which we preached here a couple of years ago, Paul goes on and on and on about the need for people there to, to live good lives, godly lives. He uses a different metaphor, okay? In, in this letter, the metaphor he uses is a pillar, and he says, like, like a, a Roman or a you know, from Greek architecture or Roman architecture, a pillar, it holds something up. So our lives, our shared life together is supposed to hold up the gospel so that people can see it and see that it's beautiful. The metaphor in the book of Titus is different. At one point, he talks about how we, we make the gospel beautiful. The metaphor is like a window display in a shop. Our, our job as the church is to be a beautiful window display so that the gospel when it's, it sits there, is beautiful for a watching world. Same message in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And if you're still not persuaded that this is the calling of God's people to, to present the gospel in a beautiful way to the world, start reading the Bible, looking for it, and you'll trip over it everywhere. Deuteronomy. We studied it a while ago chapter 4, when Moses is calling the people to obey God's law, to live godly lives, he explains why. He said, observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Surely theirs is a great God. Some of you were here a couple of weeks ago as Chris Wright gave the, the Bible readings at Bangor Worldwide on the theme, Arise and Shine. Those words taken from Isaiah 60. They talk of a time when God's people would receive God's light and, and would be God's light for the world. Isaiah 60, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Godly living attracts people like moths to a flame. 
for anyone yet to be persuaded. What do you make of Jesus' own words? Right at the start, given that place of prominence, right at the start of his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why is Paul writing? He's commanding Timothy to silence the false teaching that's crept into the church in Ephesus and which is undermining the church from its true role, which is to be a pillar and the foundation of the gospel in that city. The church in Ephesus isn't doing its work. It isn't shining. It isn't holding the gospel forth as an attractive thing. And Paul wants Timothy to get to work to set that right. We've thought about who wrote the letter and who they wrote it to. We've thought about why Paul wrote this letter. I hope it's easy to see just for a moment why we would want to study a letter like that. The, the church in Ephesus, it had absorbed teaching that was legalistic, that was materialistic, and as a result, it's characterized by infighting, squabbling, it's become inward-looking, and as a consequence, it's, it's just not doing what a church is supposed to do. It has no impact, no positive impact on the surrounding society. In, in fact, the reputation of the church has, has gone to a, a very low ebb. When you put it like this, it's not hard to see how this letter might be relevant to a church today. Churches still struggle with moralism. People find us legalistic. Almost all of us still struggle with materialism. Forgive me, I've just lost my my place there. So, so many evangelical churches have become inward-looking. Because of the way we conduct ourselves, we don't, enjoy, we don't enjoy good relationships among ourselves and certainly not a, a shining reputation in our local community. We struggle, therefore, to make an impact on our society. Our lack of clarity about the gospel and our lack of, of, of godly living leads to an ineffective church failing in its mission. First Timothy speaks to all of that. We're going to be encouraged, I hope, and challenged as we study it. For these reasons alone, it would be good to study First Timothy, but there is there's a reason why I've chosen to study it now. It's because the letter helps us to think a lot about leadership. We're a church that recognizes our need of new leadership. We're grateful for the leaders we have. In the last few months, we have appointed seven new elders. We have established a new congregational committee. We're replenishing leadership in lots of different places in the congregation. Healthy churches need healthy leadership. And we're going to be reading this book with, with an eye to what we can learn about what a, a good leader is. Okay. So we've introduced the book. 
I haven't really dealt with tonight's passage yet. Seven verses. Can you give me a few minutes? I'll do this quite quickly. Those opening seven verses, we've actually covered a lot of the ground. We can get a good handle on these first seven verses answering three questions. What's the problem? What's the solution? Sorry, what's the problem? What are the dangers? What's the solution? So what is the problem in Ephesus? We've said it already. Verse 3 and 4. Teachers teaching false or alternative doctrines which Paul wants Timothy to address. What were they teaching? It's hard to tie it down. This is quite a common thing, actually, when you look across Paul's letters. It, it's hard to be definitive about what the false teaching is that Paul's confronting in a lot of his letters. Have a look, and we'll see what the text actually says. We know that they're devoted to myths, verse 4. In chapter 4, Paul commands Timothy to have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Theological speculation can creep into any church. A spirituality based on, you know, a kind of wish it was like this. I wish the Bible said this. Wouldn't life be great if only our God was like this? No secure footing in biblical truth. So myths, things that people just make up or, or wish to be true. The false teaching involves also, verse 4, an interest in genealogies. That, that seems quite a foreign idea to us. I don't really know how genealogies contribute to, to spirituality. One, one thing I do know Occasionally I encounter people who, rather than talking to me about their living faith in Jesus Christ, will tell me about the faith of their ancestors. My granny was married in that church, you know. Or, or maybe it takes a slightly more theological bent. We've been Presbyterians to five generations in my family. We're very, very reformed. We can easily end up turning our theological heritage into a badge for including us and excluding others. Whenever Paul assesses what the devotion to these myths and the interest in genealogies does, chapter 6, verse 20, he says the result is, that there is something that's falsely called knowledge. It might sound smart, Paul says, but it's not. The false teachers they're devoted to myths, they're interested in genealogies, and verse 7, they're somehow getting it wrong about the law. These people wanted to be teachers of the law, and they descended into legalism. Uh, we'll, we'll see examples of the legalism later in the letter. It's easy to slide into legalism. Sometimes you can do it with the best of motives. You say to yourself, Ephesus or, or Bangor, it, it's such a sinful, wicked city. We'd better provide very clear guidelines to, to tell people how they should live, to, to keep them from being contaminated. It all sounds plausible. But before long, we've made keeping rules to be the heart of our relationship with God. These people may, may even have had good motives, but they were getting it wrong about the law. 
What's the problem? The problem is false teaching. The problem is serious. Paul begins and ends his letter by telling Timothy to stop it. Second question, what are the dangers here in Ephesus? This false teaching, verse 4, leads to controversies. If you flick with me to chapter 6, we can learn more about the effects of the controversies. Verse 4, he says, the false teachers, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. The false teachings also characterized as meaningless talk back in verse 6 of chapter 1. At the end of the letter, it's referred to as godless chatter. In our churches, there can be a lot of religious-sounding talk. might even sound impressive. But it's like a car that has the engine running at full throttle, but which isn't in gear. There's tremendous noise, there's heat, and there's friction, but there's no forward momentum. If we're talking among ourselves here in Hamilton Road a lot about religious things, but it's not binding us together and sending us out with the gospel of Jesus Christ into Bangor, I'm nervous that we're in this kind of territory. This kind of ungodly behavior, it's bad enough in itself, but it leads to a worse consequence. We've already noticed this, but notice it again. People are wandering from the faith. Folks, Hamilton Road, I think, can be a confusing place at times because a lot of people do come here and are willing to join us. It obscures something that I find deeply troubling. I find it deeply troubling how easy it is for people to leave us, to be put off. I'm not talking about the casual attender, somebody who drops in, has a look, and decides it's not for them. I'm talking about our own children. I'm talking about those who, who should be here and who should love being here. Isn't it a sobering thought that, that we might be part of what's pushing them away from, from Christ and his church? Bad churches drive people away from Jesus Christ. No wonder Timothy commands Paul to stop their, their teaching and their influence. It's destroying people entirely. We've seen that the problem is false teaching. We've seen the dangers that come with it. What's the solution? Very quickly. Paul points Timothy to the solution by urging him to refocus on two things. Refocus on the gospel. Paul talks in gospel terms even in these first seven verses. I haven't drawn much attention to the, the details so far. It's the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, which brings salvation and hope. It's through the gospel that we experience God's grace, mercy, and peace, verse 2. In verse 4, Paul reminds Timothy that God's work is promoted not by arguments, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We were remembering the importance this morning of faith as our response to the gospel. 
Salvation won't come, verse 7, through greater obedience to the law or a superior knowledge, as these false teachers say it will. It's only going to come through an ongoing trust, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see that when we look at the rest of chapter 1. Paul will speak of his own experience of the gospel. Here in Hamilton Road, we have got to be sure that our teaching and our life don't cover up or obscure the glorious gospel message. We are God's household. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. We've got to preach and live the gospel so that the gospel will be held high for all to see. We want to see God's Spirit speak through our words and shine through our deeds so that people will come to saving faith in Jesus. The gospel must be central. Paul calls Timothy also not only to refocus on the gospel, but to refocus on godly living. Correcting the false teachers is imperative, but it's not an end in itself. If we get a church where the teaching is perfect, but the living is still appalling, then the work isn't done. Orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy. Right teaching must lead to right living. And so Paul says about his command to correct the false teaching, verse 5, the goal of this command is love. Silence the false teaching so that a real church will emerge. Not a place of arguments and squabbling. Paul wants to see the kind of community that the gospel brings into being, where we live together with pure hearts, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A community of love. That will preach. That will serve as a pillar for the gospel in Bangor. Paul wants to see the church in Ephesus refocusing on the gospel and on godly living. It's not any different than what Paul says elsewhere. In Galatians, he puts it like this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I like how Angus McClay summarizes Paul's teaching in these opening verses. He said that Paul has given us a clear diagnosis of the problem that the church faces with the rise of their false teachers. He has given us a prognosis of where such teaching will lead and its disastrous effects on the whole church family in terms of ungodly behavior and people wandering from the faith. And finally, like any good doctor, Paul has also prescribed the best medicine in order to bring healing and wholeness. A refocusing on the gospel and its effect, godly living. Friends, let's read this short letter together. Let's hear God's call back to the gospel and back to godly living. Let's pray.